you should always be skeptical when somebody tries to promote an interpretation of the text that is grossly inconsistent with what the text itself actually says. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan, and this will be the second episode of a three-part series dealing with the historical and scientific accuracy of Genesis. Last episode, I argued that if one believes in evolution and millions of years, then they are holding beliefs which are logically incompatible with Christianity. If a Christian is to maintain a consistent worldview, then they must submit to the plain reading of Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and accept the reality that God created everything in six literal days approximately 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve truly existed as the first humans, and God flooded the entire earth in the days of Noah. Now that we have covered the biblical evidence in support of a literal reading of Genesis, we will look at arguments from the other side. Just like the last episode, this episode will not consider any scientific evidence on this topic. Instead, this episode will focus solely on arguments from the biblical text itself that theistic evolutionists commonly use to support their position that Genesis is non-literal and therefore not historically accurate. And before covering these arguments, I do want to encourage you to really dive into this topic and examine the verses I'm bringing up for yourself. With that said, we will now look at six arguments against a literal interpretation of Genesis. The first argument against a literal view of Genesis I want to cover is the claim that Genesis 1 is written in Hebrew poetic format, so it was not intended to be taken literally by its original author. First, I want to point out that even if Genesis 1 was written in poetic format, that would still not support the view that Genesis is figurative. This is because the Bible is full of passages which most would consider to be poetic language, yet these passages accurately record true history. In other words, just because a passage is poetry, this does not automatically make the statements in that passage figurative or non-literal. For example, Exodus 15 records that Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Even though Moses and the Israelites sang this song, which has poetic elements, it still contains true historical statements about the Egyptians' destruction. 
Therefore, just because a passage is written in poetic format, this is not a legitimate reason to disregard what it says as being not historically accurate. And there are plenty of examples of this exact thing all throughout the Old Testament. There are typically two textual arguments which people use to claim that Genesis 1 is poetry and therefore should not be taken literally. The first argument is commonly known as the literary framework view. The literary framework view states that the days of Genesis 1 intentionally form two groups of three. The first group of three contains days 1, 2, and 3, and the second group contains days 4, 5, and 6. To elaborate on the framework view, I will read directly from Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Grudem has this to say about the literary framework view. This view argues that the six days of Genesis 1 are not intended to indicate a chronological sequence of events, but are rather a literary framework which the author uses to teach us about God's creative activity. The framework is skillfully constructed so that the first three days and the second three days correspond to each other. In this way, a parallel construction is seen. On day one, God separates light and darkness, where on day four, he puts the sun, moon, and stars in the light and in the darkness. On day two, he separates the waters and the sky, while on day five, he puts the fish in the waters and the birds in the sky. On day three, he separates the dry land and the seas and makes plants to grow, while on day six, he puts the animals and man on the dry land and gives the plants to them for food. According to the framework view, Genesis 1 should not be read as though the author wanted to inform us about the sequence of days or the order in which things were created, nor did he intend to tell us about the length of time the creation took. In the words of a recent advocate for this position, chronology has no place here. Now, you may be thinking this literary framework view is a bit of a stretch, and if you are thinking this, then I'd say you are correct. After Grudem describes what the literary framework view is, he explains the reasons why he rejects this view. Put simply, the supposed correlation between the first three days in which God creates different environmental domains and the second three days in which God creates the things which inhabit each domain does not actually follow the text of Genesis 1. For example, the literary framework view claims that the domain created on day 2 is for the fish created on day 4. However, Genesis 1-2 tells us that the water on earth already existed on day 1. And if we really want to follow what the text says, God actually prepares the domain for fish on day 3, because Genesis 1-10 tells us that it was on the third day when God gathered the waters together and specifically called them seas. When God makes the fish on day 4, 
he tells them to multiply and fill the waters in the seas. And the end of Genesis 1 specifically labels them as fish of the sea, further demonstrating that God truly prepared their domain on the third day, not the second day. Likewise, even though birds created on day four do fly in the expanse of heaven, which was created on day two, birds still spend much of their time in trees and on the ground. Notice that Genesis 1.22 states that God tells the birds to multiply in the earth, implying that Genesis 1 does not exclusively link birds to the expanse of heaven. Grudem discusses other problems with the literary framework view, which leads him to conclude that the supposed literary framework, while having an initial appearance of neatness, turns out to be less and less convincing upon closer reading of the text. And if you want to investigate further problems with this view, I recommend you check out pages 405 to 408 of Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. The other textual argument that is usually used in attempt to label Genesis 1 as poetry is the claim that because Genesis 1 uses repetition, it must be poetic. Proponents of this view point out that the six days of God's creating work all contain a similar pattern. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and each day ends with the phrase, and the evening and the morning were the X day. Furthermore, each day also says that God saw his work was good. The claim that Genesis 1 contains a repetitive pattern when describing the days of creation is absolutely correct, as anyone can see this by simply reading the chapter. However, to use this evidence to come to the conclusion that Genesis 1 should not be taken literally is unfounded. Just because a text contains a characteristic of poetic expression, such as repetition, this does not automatically mean that the text should be labeled poetry. Perhaps the best example of this can be found in Numbers 1, which lists the number of men who could go to war from each tribe of Israel. The description of each tribe's census follows the same pattern. Numbers 1 verses 24 to 27 say that of the children of Gad, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war, those that were numbered of them, even of the tribe of Gad, were forty-five thousand six hundred and fifty. Of the children of Judah, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war, those that were numbered of them, even of the tribe of Judah, were 74,600. And if you keep reading, the chapter continues to follow this same exact pattern when describing the census counts from the remaining tribes. This example proves that just because a passage contains repetition 
this does not automatically put it into the genre of non-literal poetry. In fact, if you're describing similar things, it actually makes sense to use repetitive language in order to be consistent. To infer that Genesis 1 is figurative poetry due to the presence of repetition is simply arbitrary and lacks valid support. Ultimately, attempts to label Genesis 1 as having a poetic format are weakly supported and debatable. Furthermore, referencing quotes by Old Testament scholars when debating this topic is pointless, seeing as there are scholars on both sides of this issue. Perhaps the most powerful statement by a scholar which refutes the idea that Genesis is poetry is by Stephen Boyd. Boyd actually conducted a statistical analysis of the quantity and quality of Hebrew words used in Genesis 1 in order to determine if it should be classified as a true historical narrative or as a figurative poem. Put simply, Boyd compared the language used in Genesis 1 to the language used in other Old Testament passages. Boyd randomly chose 48 passages that are considered to be narrative and 49 passages that are considered to be poetry in order to see what Genesis 1 more closely resembled. What's remarkable is that based on the specific types of words Boyd examined, a graph could be plotted, and this graph had a very clear distinction between the narrative passages and the poetic passages. So, based purely on the types of words used, Genesis 1 landed right where the narrative passages were clustered on the graph. These findings were so convincing that Boyd concluded the following. Three major implications from this study are, one, it is not statistically defensible to read Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 as poetry. Two, since Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is a narrative, it should be read as other Hebrew narratives are intended to be read, as a concise report of actual events, couched to convey an unmistakable theological message. And three, when this text is read as a narrative, there is only one tenable view of its plain sense. God created everything in six literal days. So, all in all, concerning the claim that Genesis 1 is poetic in nature, there is exceptional evidence that this claim is completely false. It is more rational and biblically consistent to read Genesis 1 as a historical narrative, and remember that even if this passage was poetic in nature, that still would not justify a non-literal interpretation. Because the attempt to label Genesis 1 as figurative poetry is so easily refuted, most modern-day scholars who promote a non-historical view of Genesis tend to take a different approach. This approach will be the second argument we will look at, which is to claim that Genesis 1 is clearly meant to be an attack on the false gods of Israel's surrounding neighbors. Those who promote this view say that because the author of Genesis 1 had no intention of trying to relay 
any scientific or historical truth in his writings, it is inappropriate to project our modern scientific perspective onto the text. They often bring up other creation stories from surrounding nations in attempt to show their relationship to Genesis 1 and note how the purpose of Genesis 1 is purely theological because it demonstrates that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the ultimate creator. Notable scholars who promote this view include Tim Mackey of The Bible Project and Michael Heiser, who I constantly referenced in our previous three-part series on strange Bible passages. Here is a brief recording of Tim Mackey supporting this view. This is a, this is a thesis. This is not just my thesis. Um, again, I, you know, people way smarter than me. Hebrew Bible scholars, so many different amazing scholars. I'm just synthesizing their work here and trying to uh, let people know about it. So I'm adapting a number of really smart people's language here. The early chapters of Genesis accurately present two accounts of the cosmic and human origins in the language and ideas of the ancient Hebrews. These texts should not be removed from their ancient context and read as if they speak literally about the universe or humans in 21st century scientific terms. Don't take it out of the ancient setting and make it try and do something it wasn't designed to do. They speak in terms of an ancient Near Eastern perception of the world. They should be interpreted within that setting. First, I want to point out that it does seem like a bit of a stretch to come to this conclusion, but even if the details of Genesis 1 do happen to mock the gods of other nations, that does not detract from the historical value of Genesis in any way. For one, God's plagues on Egypt, as recorded in Exodus, were a slap in the face to the Egyptian gods because Yahweh demonstrated his power over things like the water, animals, the sun, etc. when he inflicted these plagues. However, that does not make the plagues of Exodus any less historically true. Furthermore, if creation stories from other ancient civilizations have similarities to Genesis 1, then this by no means proves that the author of Genesis 1 was purposefully responding to these stories. This is because if creation happened as described in the Bible, you would expect that the creation myths from around the world would have some similarities because people would have passed down the creation story by oral tradition. Many Bible critics will point to other, similar accounts in order to try and discredit the inspiration of the Bible by saying that Israel simply borrowed these ideas from its neighboring nations. Perhaps the best example of this is known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which records a giant flood and is sometimes dated to before the time of Moses. The flood story of Gilgamesh has many similarities to the flood of Noah, so critics will say that the author of Genesis simply copied from the story of Gilgamesh. However, what's really going on here is that these stories are describing the same event. While the account of Noah's flood in Genesis is the accurate version 
because it has been preserved by God, any differences that may be found in the flood of Gilgamesh are simply the result of changes which occurred from oral tradition. After the flood, of course Noah's descendants would tell stories about it for decades and even centuries. While these stories gained and lost some details over time, they have their origin in the true flood of Noah. Likewise, even if Genesis 1 has similarities to other creation accounts, it is unfounded to conclude that this means Genesis 1 is a reaction to these accounts. I'd like to point out that this argument actually highlights a major problem that can occur with biblical scholarship, which is an overemphasis of the original human author's viewpoint when the text was written down. While yes, many things in the Bible are better understood if one is familiar with the culture they were written in, you should always be skeptical when somebody tries to promote an interpretation of the text that is grossly inconsistent with what the text itself actually says. Many people will say something like, based on the historical context, the passage actually means this, and then they'll proceed to tell you something radically different than what the text plainly says. I'd say this is actually the result of secular ideologies and liberal philosophy creeping into seminaries. These antichrist beliefs promote the view that the Bible is simply a collection of man-made writings which are not inspired by God. Hence, someone with this view will overemphasize what the original human author may have meant based on his cultural context and completely ignore the fact that God inspired every word the author wrote down. For proof that we should not let the original cultural context have too much power over how we interpret the Bible, consider the following example. Obviously, Job would know nothing about astronomy based on his cultural context, yet he wrote in Job 26 verse 7 that God hangs the earth upon nothing. See, it doesn't matter what the original author's cultural context was because every word they wrote down is inspired by God. While cultural context is important, believing the entire Bible is consistent in its teachings is more important because God authored the entire Bible and he is not affected by time or culture. And this is just another example of why systematic theology is so important. Because if someone tries to pull this trick on you when discussing Genesis, you can simply bring up the 20 plus verses which demonstrate that Jesus and the biblical authors believed Genesis was true history. Because every word of scripture is inspired by God and God cannot contradict himself, we should always side with the abundance of clear verses. The third argument against a historical view of Genesis is to claim that the flood of Noah was just a local flood and that it did not cover the entire earth. Reasons why the flood of Noah had to be global include 1. 
Genesis 6 notes that God said to Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh where there is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. The text plainly states that the flood will destroy everything that is in the earth, so there is no way to honestly label this language as referring to a local flood. Second, Genesis 7 verses 19 to 20 says that the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. This passage says that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered with water, further indicating the global extent of the flood. A common attack is to claim that there is no way there could have been enough water to cover Mount Everest, but this argument fails to consider that Mount Everest did not exist before the flood. The entire world was very different before the flood, and the flood completely rearranged the entire planet. Third, and perhaps the worst thing about this belief, is that it makes God a liar, because God explicitly promised that he would never cause a flood like the flood of Noah to happen ever again, and he chose the rainbow to be the sign of his promise. God says in Genesis 9 verses 13 to 15 that I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Since there have been thousands of local floods since the time of Noah, if Noah's flood was not global, then God would be a liar. And lastly, if the flood of Noah was just a local flood, why did God have him build a gigantic ark when he could have just told him to move? This clearly makes no sense, and if one claims to be a Christian, yet chooses to disregard the historical accuracy of Noah's flood, then they are left with terrible inconsistencies in their worldview. The fourth major argument against taking Genesis literally is to say that the days of Genesis 1 could not be literal days because the sun was created on the fourth day and you cannot have a day without the sun. Furthermore, because Genesis describes that there is light before the creation of the sun, some people take this as further evidence that this account is non-literal. First, it must be noted that Revelation also states that there will be no sun in heaven. Revelation 22.5 states that in heaven there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, it appears like the light in Genesis, which existed before the sun, stemmed directly from God and his glory. However God chose to emit this light, he may have done it in such a way that this light only affected part of the earth as it was rotating 
during the first few days of creation, therefore simulating a day-night cycle that would be similar to the one we have today with the sun. Notice that Genesis 1.14 says that God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. This verse notes that the sun and moon are to be for signs and seasons and days and years. Therefore, the time of a day is not dependent on the sun and moon. Instead, the sun and moon were created to match the predetermined time span of a day. The fifth argument we will look at is the claim that because time does not affect God like it affects us, we cannot know whether the days in Genesis are literal or not. Aside from the various strong evidences we have already covered which refute this idea, the great irony of this argument is that one of the most commonly used verses in support of it is actually part of a New Testament passage which accurately predicts that people in the future would doubt the history in Genesis. The verse I'm talking about is 2 Peter 3.8, which says that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. People claim that this verse shows that time doesn't mean the same to God as it does to humans, so the word day in Genesis could very well mean long periods of time. While this statement is partially true because it is correct that time does not mean the same to God as it does to humans, there are some major flaws with this argument. For one, notice that the passage compares a day to a thousand years, which is exponentially less time than millions or billions of years. Second, if we read the entire passage, then we see that this verse should actually scare those who promote a non-literal view of Genesis. Here's what the full passage says. Be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth stood out of the water and in the water. Therefore the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, where the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are in it, shall be burned up. 
Notice that the whole point of this passage is to say that during the end times, there will be scoffers who will doubt that Jesus will come back. One major characteristic of these scoffers is that they will be willingly ignorant that the world that then was, was overflowed with water and perished. 2,000 years ago, God told us that scoffers in the end times will choose to reject the truth of Noah's flood, which is exactly what proponents of a non-historical view of Genesis do. Peter acknowledges that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and that a thousand years is like a day, to demonstrate that even though thousands of years may go by before Jesus returns, time does not affect God's promises. Even though it has been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven, he will still come back in flaming fire. This passage should make you think, do you want to side with what the scoffers in the end times will say? Or do you want to stand on the firm authority of God's word? The sixth and final topic I want to look at before wrapping this episode up are some arguments that people use in favor of the gap theory. First, I want to go over the couple of verses that people will sometimes use in attempt to support the gap theory. One verse gap theorists will bring up is Isaiah 45, 18, which states that, Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Because Genesis 1.1 says that God created the heaven and the earth, and Genesis 1.2 says that the earth was without form and void, gap theorists say that since God did not create earth that way, it must have somehow become that way. So there must have been something going on between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 that caused earth to become without form and void. Now, this argument is extremely simple to debunk, and that's because God was not done with his creating work until day 6. The point of Isaiah 45.18 is to magnify God by pointing out his life-giving creative power. There is nothing about the context of this verse that would warrant a gap theorist's interpretation, as this verse is not providing us with a hyperliteral, overly specific description of Genesis 1-2. Isaiah 45-18 is obviously correct because God did not create the earth in vain. He created it to be inhabited, and his creative work took a total of six literal days. Another passage is Jeremiah 4, verses 23-25, where God says, I beheld the earth, and lo... It was without form and void, and the heavens had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens fled. Gap theorists will point to the fact that this passage describes the earth as being without form and void, just like Genesis 1-2 does. And because this passage explains a lot going on, there must have been some sort of gap of time between Genesis 1-1 one, one 
and 1-2. I encourage you to read the whole chapter of Jeremiah 4, and you'll see that this interpretation is completely unwarranted based on the context. God is clearly describing a future time of judgment here, which does not line up with the creation account in Genesis, because there is no judgment going on in Genesis 1. Shortly before this passage, God even says in Jeremiah 4.14, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. How long shall your vain thoughts lodge within you? And in Jeremiah 4.22, which immediately precedes the passage in question, God says, For my people are foolish, they have not known me. They are foolish children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. This passage is obviously talking about God's judgment on Jerusalem and has nothing to do with the creation. The last detail we will look at in favor of the gap theory is the claim that Genesis 1-1 should actually be translated when God began creating the heaven and the earth, instead of the traditional translation, which is in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Gap theorists claim that the former translation supports their view because it appears to imply that the universe had already existed for some amount of time before God began creating the heaven and the earth. I believe the traditional translation, which is, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, is the correct translation based on evidential grounds, and if you want more information on this topic, I'd recommend an article published by Answers in Genesis titled, Have We Misunderstood Genesis 1-1? and authored by Joshua D. Wilson. But regardless of which translation is correct, the problem with this argument is that even if it was the case that Genesis 1-1 should be translated as when God began creating the heaven and the earth, that still does not help the gap theory. Because Genesis 1 states that God made the vegetation on day 3, and that he made the sun, moon, and stars on day 4, if gap theorists want to use this argument, then they have a universe with no stars and a formless earth with no vegetation, no sun, and no moon, existing for millions of years. This is a very bizarre picture of origins, and really falls flat as an attempt to try and reconcile Genesis with the evolutionary worldview anyways, since evolutionists would laugh at this unscientific position. Regardless, as we went over earlier in this episode, God specifically says in Exodus 20.11 that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So all of God's creating work had to have been completed in a six-day period. Because the term heaven includes the entire universe itself, God could not have created the universe and then waited millions of years to create earth, or create earth and then have waited millions of years to create every kind of creature, because this passage explicitly states that all of his work had to have happened within a six-day period. And again, Jesus said that God made male and female at the beginning of creation, 
so there is no room for millions of years between the creation of the universe and the creation of man. When the entire Bible is taken into account, the gap theory is simply unfounded. In conclusion, it must be pointed out that a lot of times people will shrug this issue off as being secondary or irrelevant. They will say something like, God could have created the universe in however long he wanted to, or God could have used evolution to bring humans about if he wanted to. Who are you to try and limit how God chose to do it? However, this mentality misses the issue at hand. The issue is not that God could have created in any amount of time he wanted, because he obviously could have. The issue is whether or not you submit to the authority of the Bible. There are plenty of issues that I would consider tertiary, such as the pre-trib versus post-trib rapture debate, the nature of the spiritual gift of tongues, the specific day of the week that Jesus was crucified on, etc. However, the reason I would consider these issues tertiary is because there are reasonable arguments from both sides, and one's idea of God's character is not significantly changed based on the view that they hold. With the topic of the historical and scientific accuracy of Genesis, it's no competition as far as which side has more biblical support, and one's view of Genesis will greatly affect their view of God's character. The fact that the biblical evidence is so overwhelming for a literal view of Genesis means that if one does not take Genesis literally, then they inevitably lose any foundation for properly interpreting any other biblical passage. This is extremely dangerous because it undermines the Bible's inspiration, inerrancy, and authority, and it results in hermeneutical anarchy. If one is not convinced that the Bible treats Genesis as being historically accurate, then they cannot logically say that the Bible convincingly portrays other events as historically accurate. The fact of the matter is that if those who view Genesis as non-historical applied the same interpretive approach to the rest of the Bible as they do to Genesis, their entire Christian faith would crumble. The other reason I said that this topic is such a big deal is because it significantly affects one's view of God's character. Thinking that God labeled the death, disease, and destruction of evolution as very good in Genesis 1 makes God into quite a cruel character. Unlike those who believe God made a wonderful creation which was corrupted by man's sin, those who disregard the literal reading of Genesis have no valid explanation for the presence of natural disasters and diseases. And with that, we will finally conclude this episode. My name is Nathan, and I want to thank you for listening to the Millennial Apologist podcast. Have a good day.